All right, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 2, Isaiah 25, John 2, Isaiah 25, and Revelation 21. John 2, Isaiah 25, Revelation 21. And we'll get to those eventually. I had a, conversa- a short conversation this morning. I got to meet Matt's son, which I've met Matt's son before. Uh, Matt, uh, Matt's son is John, right? John? And John's fiance, Olivia. And they're saying, I can't believe we're visiting this church and he's centering us out. Uh, but uh, they let me know that they're engaged. They're going to get married in the spring. Congratulations. No applause, please. Uh, but, you know, as they're planning their wedding, they're going to have some serious decisions to make. Now, one of those decisions, a major decision, is going to be, and they're probably already racking their brains, who should we invite? Who should we invite? And so I just wanted to extend to Calvary Baptist Church, you are all invited to... <laughs> no, not really. Not really. They're, 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 thank, they're saying it's, the wedding is going to be in Ottawa, so uh, they know you're all not going to uh, go up there. But uh, they're going to have to uh, they're going to have to think about who they're going to invite. And obviously, they're going to start with their closest family, right? I mean, they're in closest family; they're invited. Sure. Uh, then they're going to maybe think about closest friends, those that just have to be there, because you're going to have your wedding party. Then you're going to have those who have to be there. And then, you know, you're going to kind of, kind of like concentric circles. They're going to have to start thinking about, okay, well, maybe there's family we don't have a lot of connection with, but, you know, they're still family. We want them to be there, even though we don't see them a whole lot. So you're going to have to invite them as well. And then maybe they're going to have, like, friends from the past. Friends that, I mean, good relationship. We've just kind of grown a little bit distant. But you know what? This is our special day. We want them to be there. So our good friends are going to be there. And, and so they're going to have their, their close family. They're going to have extended family. They're going to have friends. They might have old friends. But then, you know, their list is going to become a little bit different. Because, you know, if you've had a wedding, you've had those invitations that go out to those close friends, close families. But then you start getting into that section of the list that's kind of like obligation. Those people that you just know you have to invite, maybe because they're first cousins, second cousins, don't have much relationship, but, you know, they're family, you just have to invite them. And you go down that list, and maybe you've got some coworkers. Those co-workers that, you know, they're basically just work friends. You don't have much relationship outside of work, but, you know, you kind of feel like you have to invite them. And, and then you have some casual acquaintances that maybe you just feel obligated. You got married and you didn't tell us, and then, oh, you got to invite them too. And then you got to have, like, the plus ones, you know, that uh, you can bring a guest. And so then you're going to have this host of people there at the wedding. You don't even really know who they are, uh, but they're going to be there too, some people you might meet for the first time. Uh, and then there are those... Uh, who you think you're going to send out an invitation to, and you figure, well, they're not going to come, but I just figure I need to send an invitation out of obligation. And so those are some big decisions. So, so pray for them as they're making those decisions regarding, and if you don't get an invitation, you know where you fall on that list, right? <laughs> so, wow. Can't believe he just did that to this young couple who's just visiting for the first time, or for a second, third time maybe. Yes, there is a connection. 
In John chapter 2 today, we're going to be looking at a situation in Jesus' life that is in the context of a wedding. And you understand when you were planning your wedding, there were those that you wanted to invite because you understood this was a special day. This is a celebration. This is really the beginning of new life. And so there are those that you absolutely wanted to be there. You wanted your special day to be a day of love and joy. You wanted it to be a celebration. Again, a celebration of new life, milestone, and so on. And so that's weighed heavily upon those that you wanted to be there. The setting of our passage in John 2 is just such a situation. This is a wedding. It's actually a wedding reception. It's a Jewish wedding reception in John 2. Now, this is a big deal in John 2. This is a serious celebration. Unlike our weddings that might last a day, a Jewish wedding would actually last a week. So, be very thankful, Olivia, that you don't have to plan a week-long celebration. Yeah. And sometimes this week-long celebration would be an open invitation to really the entire town. And there would be a sense of obligation that you had to go uh, to this wedding. And so these celebrations would be, again, about a week long, but there would be free-flowing food. Uh, There would be free-flowing wine. And the expectation was that the groom would provide all of this and that it would last the entire week. That's the expectation. On the occasion of our passage, however, disaster is impending. Disaster is about to strike this wedding. Now, let's read it together in John chapter 2, verse 1. We're just going to go kind of verse by verse, explain the story here. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so, uh, evidently, there's some connection here between Jesus family, Jesus and his mother, and this wedding party, this couple, because Mary apparently is part of the planning committee here. She has something to do with the planning of this, of this wedding. So verse 3 makes that plain, because it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, when you initially read that, you might just kind of glance past that and say, well, what's the big deal? They ran out of wine. Certainly the wine's going to run out at some point, especially if you have a week-long celebration. But we have to understand the social context. This, in a Jewish context at this time, was a serious social faux pas. Uh, To run out of wine at a wedding was really an indication that maybe that groom doesn't have the ability to make provision for his wife and family. I mean, that's his job to make sure that uh, the wine was there all the way through the party, and even maybe some left over. And so this really is a social disaster. This is going to be a matter of shame upon the groom uh, if this wine runs out. It strikes right to the perception of the groom's character. And so Mary understands this. And so the wine's running out and is somewhat of a panic, and she goes to her son. Why does she go to Jesus? We don't really know. Is she expecting a miracle? Probably not. He hasn't done any miracles yet. But at this point, Mary's probably a widow. We don't see any mention of Joseph anymore. She's probably a widow. Jesus is the head of the household, uh, obviously very resourceful. She's relying upon him. And so she goes to Jesus and says, uh, they're running out of wine. Serious social dilemma. And so, you just think about the guests now coming, and they're saying, I'd like a glass of wine, and we're out. Oh no, serious, and it needs to be solved immediately. And so now look at Jesus' response in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. Now, initial reading, that seems a little rude. Woman, we don't talk to each other that way, do we? It's not actually as rude as it sounds, however, in this context. uh, That address woman is actually the same address that he uses when he's at the cross, and he entrusts his mother to the care of John. And in that case, it's actually endearment. So it's not as rude as it sounds. However... What he then says, what does this have to do with me, really is kind of like a statement of distance. It's kind of like saying, your priorities right now, not my priorities. Your priorities are not my priorities. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. What does this mean? Hopefully we'll make sense of it. And so she alerts Jesus to this. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. But then he signals that he actually is going to do something. He is actually going to address this problem. And so Mary says in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. He says that, she says that to the servants. Again, indicating that Mary is in some way organizing um, the servants of this wedding. And then John describes the scene here in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Big stone jars for purification. Mark tells us in Mark 7 that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. And that's not wash the hands to get the germs off. That was just ritual. Wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are other, many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches and so on. And again, it was not just to get germs off. The idea was that they're washing these things as a ritual practice, right, to kind of get the defilement off of it, uh, ceremonial defilement. And so there's these six stone water jars there for the purpose of... Uh, Purification, And they're stone because the idea was it's impervious and they're not going to be defiled as you're cleaning other things in those jars. And look how big they are. It says they held about 20 to 30 gallons each. And there's six of them. So do a quick math. There's potential there for 120 to 180 gallons of water in these stone water jars. And look in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Up to the brim. Ready to overflow, no room for anything else, filled up to the brim. Okay. In verse 8, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And there's no indication here that anything's happened other than the water jars are filled with water. Now they've taken some water out, they're going to bring it to the master of the feast. Feast, And John doesn't make a big deal about anything at this point. But verse 9 says, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And just in that very understated way, John relays the very first miracle of Jesus. Jesus turns 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of wine. And not just wine, but look at the quality of this wine. The master tastes the water become wine, and now he calls over the bridegroom. And who knows, maybe rumor was starting to spread, and maybe the bridegroom kind of understood that the wine was running out. We don't really know. But to be called over, maybe there's a problem. But the master of the feast says to the bridegroom in verse 20, or verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. This is commendation. 
saying, good job, groom. And most people will, will t- get the good stuff out at the beginning. Why? Well, because hopefully maybe those who are there for the party, maybe they have their fill and their fill is all with the good stuff. Or maybe there's those who come and they drink a little bit too much and so their senses are dulled so then it doesn't really matter if the wine they drink afterwards is not the highest quality. But the master of the feast has been to his share of weddings and he's saying this isn't how things are normally done. I mean, this is quality wine. Probably the best wine he's tasted, right? And so he calls the groom over and commends the groom not knowing that Jesus has performed the miracle because Jesus has done it really behind the scenes and so he thinks the groom is responsible for this because again... It's the groom's responsibility to make all that provision. So, with that, a social disaster is averted. Jesus performs this miracle of mercy on behalf of the bride and groom. I mean, there's a wedding gift for you. Not only would they avoid the shame and, uh, of disappointing their wedding guests, but the groom's actually commended. Now, again, notice that this is behind the scenes. When Jesus says to Mary, my time has not yet come, he performs this miracle, not in this overt way to garner all this attention, but does it behind the scenes so that Mary knows it, the servants know it, uh, his disciples know it, uh, but really that's it. Even the master of the feast doesn't understand that Jesus has performed this miracle. Now look in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, there you go. Pretty Quick narrative, pretty easy narrative. The first of Jesus' miracles is turning water into wine. His disciples believe, and we move on, right? So have a good afternoon, right? We know that John the Apostle has written his gospel specifically uh, for a very specific reason. He says in John chapter 20 that of all the miracles that Jesus had performed, he pulls out seven of them. And he relays seven miracles that Jesus has performed for a very specific purpose. He says in John chapter 20, verse 31, uh, verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And notice that John doesn't use the word miracles. He uses the word signs. He's saying all sorts of signs performed by Jesus But uh, the ones that he's chosen to relay are for the purpose of saying something about the identity of Jesus so that we will believe he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have life through his name. And he says these are signs. That is, they point to something beyond the miracle itself. They're signifying something. So here's the question this morning. In some way, this miracle of wine, water turned to wine, testifies to the identity of Jesus and testifies to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. So is there anything here in this text other than, this, the, other than the display of just mercy? Mercy uh, towards a young couple, uh, averting social disaster. Anything other than just uh, Jesus illustrating his power over creation? What is it here that testifies that he is the Messiah? That's the question. Because we know that's why John is relaying this miracle. Well, I think there's more here than what may lie on the surface First of all, notice again Jesus' response to his mother. When she tells him that the wine has run out, his response is, woman, what does it have to do with me? But then he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Interesting phrase. Throughout the Gospel of John, John uses this phrase multiple times, uh, kind of showing us where we are in the process of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so he says things like, 
uh, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet fully come. Uh, and then John relays his hour had not yet come, anticipating what? What's the countdown? Because that's what it's like. It's like a clock has started and it's counting down. And John's telling us through different narratives, nope, the time hasn't come yet. Nope, the time hasn't come yet. Nope, the time hasn't come yet. Well, what time are we, are we moving towards? Well, that's the crucifixion of Christ. It's the crucifixion of Christ. Until the point in John chapter 12, verse 23, where Jesus himself says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified. Well, I just said that this is a countdown to the crucifixion, and Jesus in John chapter 12 says, well, now the time has come for me to be glorified. But then a few verses later, he says in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And so we see there that this hour, this countdown, is towards the crucifixion of Jesus, which could also be called the glorification of Jesus, because uh, his glory is put on display, but also because it results in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his victory over sin, death, and Satan, and his ascension to his throne where he is glorified. And so the crucifixion is the gateway to his glorification. And so in a certain sense, you could say that his crucifixion is his glorification. And so this is the countdown that's happening. And so when Jesus says to Mary, my hour has not yet come, he's saying the hour of my glorification isn't here yet. That hour when I will defeat sin and death and Satan and ascend to my throne has not come yet. Now's not my time. So here's the question. Why does the request that Jesus do something about wine running out at a wedding cause Jesus to respond by talking about his coming death? Why does wine running out at a wedding put Jesus in mind of his coming exaltation and glorification and say to Mary, now's not the time? In Jewish thought, wine represented times of joy and celebration and abundance. An overflowing abundance of wine was a sign of blessing and peace and prosperity. In fact, as the Old Testament prophets foretold of a coming Messiah... In describing that messianic kingdom, that messianic kingdom is described as a kingdom where there is a free-flowing wine and feasts of rich food. That's how that messianic kingdom is described. One such passage is in Isaiah. So I ask you to turn to Isaiah 25. And we're going to start in Isaiah 24. In Isaiah 24, the Lord through the prophet Isaiah tells of a time of great judgment. The initial context is looking forward to the judgment of Babylon, but is looking beyond Babylon. And is, it's, it's foretelling a time when there will be global judgment. God asserts his authority on earth, and he really devastates the rebellious nations of the globe and establishes his own kingdom. And so in Isaiah 24, in describing the desolation, the judgment that's coming, it says in Isaiah 24, verse 6, Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Listen to the terminology here. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. Tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. 
The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets of lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. And so Isaiah is trying to represent the destruction and desolation and judgment on earth at this time. And he characterizes it by the, the wine mourning, the vine languishing. No more do they drink wine. There's an outcry for the lack of wine. All the joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Dark, desolate judgment. But then in chapter 25, Isaiah then begins to paint a different picture. Whereas the rebellious nations of the earth are judged and the earth is in a a state of desolation. In Isaiah 25, the Lord himself ascends to his throne and establishes his kingdom. And then he ushers in a new kingdom, which is going to be characterized how? Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And listen to the description here. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. That's that curse. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. After devastating and judging the earthly nations who are in rebellion against him, God himself establishes his kingdom on earth. And it says there that it's going to be characterized by a feast of rich food. And who's invited? Who's invited? Verse 6, it says, it'll be made for all peoples. For all peoples. To be invited to a king's feast or to sit at a king's table is an incredible privilege. You see that, for instance, in the the story of David and Mephibosheth. To sit at the king's table, invited to the feast, incredible privilege, and it's as if saying, you're my people. You're my people. Sitting at my table, in my home. And what does it say? The day is coming when such a feast will will be prepared for all people. For all people. All present people then will be his people. A feast, rich food, well-aged wine, well-refined wine. And then he says, death will be swallowed up. Death will be swallowed up. The curse will be rolled back. Tears will be wiped away. The Lord will take away the reproach from the people. And what? People are going to cry out, the Lord has come. Salvation has come. This is what we've been waiting for. And then he affirms the surety of these promises by saying what? The Lord has spoken. It will happen because the Lord has spoken. And with that, after judgment, God himself establishes a kingdom. Death eradicated, curse rolled back, no more mourning, no more weeping, no more tears. And some of you can appreciate that. All of us should appreciate that. You understand, we're saved this morning. We have new spiritual life, those who have believed in Jesus, but we still suffer under the curse of sin, don't we? We still experience Uh, disease, we still experience suffering, we still experience violence, we still have to experience the death of our loved ones, we all still groaning and travailing under that curse, waiting for the full and final salvation. We all can experience that, so we all look forward to that day when the kingdom will be established and God rolls back the curse of sin. That's the description here. 
Well, this in Isaiah 25 came to be understood as a prediction of a coming messianic kingdom. Isaiah 25, yes, there is immediate application there, but it also looked forward to a coming day when the Messiah would establish this kingdom on earth. The hope was a kingdom marked by joy and abundance in life. In their culture, such a kingdom was well represented by the idea of a celebratory feast. A celebratory feast with rich, free-flowing wine. You say, okay. So is that the connection? Messianic kingdom in Isaiah 25. Jesus is the Messiah. There, There's wine there at that celebration. He's asked, hey, do something about the wine. Is that enough to put Jesus in mind of Isaiah 25 and the kingdom that he would one day establish? And I say, well, it could, could be enough. But I think there's more to it. There's more to it. And I think you'll see that this is not a stretch. Isaiah 25 is actually referenced in the New Testament. That passage we just read of this coming kingdom is actually referenced in the New Testament. And it's referenced where? Where else did I tell you to turn? Revelation 21. Let's look at Revelation 21. The passage we read in Isaiah 25 for telling the messianic kingdom where death is defeated and the curse is eradicated and the world is marked by joy and abundance is here alluded to in Revelation 21. Revelation 21 is the second last chapter of the Bible. The scene here that we're about to see is describing what it will be like when God establishes his eternal kingdom just before Scripture closes and ushers us into eternity there. So in Revelation chapter 21, in verse 3, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the final fulfillment of God's covenant promises. God's covenant promises are continually, uh, I will be your God, and you will be my people And of course, his people fail over and over and over and over again. And so it makes need for a new covenant where he would actually make a new people from the inside out so that he'll be their God and it'll be his people that's accomplished through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. And it comes to full culmination or consummation in the end. And that's what we're seeing here. And so now is the time. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them for all of eternity. They'll be his people and he'll be their God. Okay, final culmination. And that, of course, is a consequence of Jesus' perfect life and his death on the cross. That's the end result of Jesus dying for us in our place, defeating sin, death, and Satan. Now, look in verse 4 of Revelation 21 and tell me if you recognize this wording. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John is making a deliberate allusion to the kingdom in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 says he'll swallow up death forever. John says, death shall be no more. Isaiah 25 says the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And John says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Very clear allusion. In other words, the kingdom being established in Revelation 21 is the kingdom foretold in Isaiah 25. And just as Isaiah backs up the surety of those promises uh, in his uh, prophecy, for the Lord has spoken, 
So John in Revelation 21 ends by saying in verse 5, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. The scene in the book of Revelation is the description of the eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom in which the Lord will reign over heaven and earth for all of eternity after judging his enemies, just as Isaiah described. So here's the question. Out of all the miracles that John could have chosen to feature in his gospel, he only chose seven. And chose them so that we would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. How does miraculously producing an abundance of wine at a wedding testify that he's the Christ, the Son of God? Well, look back at Revelation 21 and see a bit more of the setting here. Start in verse 1 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a what? As a bride. As a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and so on. Understand what's happening here? Now, all of a sudden, wedding imagery is being introduced to this scene of that eternal kingdom. But you could back up to chapter 19 of Revelation in verse 6 and see how kind of this whole scene is kicked off. John says that I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for what? The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This picture is all those men and women who have believed in Jesus of all ages past. This is the church, the saints, who are referred to as what? The bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. And so what's happening here is the eternal kingdom pictured in Isaiah 25. In the marriage supper of the Lamb mentioned in Revelation 21 and 19, we see that these things are merging together. And so this festal celebration is not just a king ascending to a throne, ushering in a kingdom, but it's also a wedding celebration. And what's the description? At that time, death is going to be eradicated. Tears are going to be wiped away. Salvation is going to be celebrated. And so John is uniting both of these things together. I think what's happening here in the Gospel of John, and, and, and who's the author of the Gospel of John? John. Who's the author of the book of Revelation? Same John. Same John. I think what's happening here is that John is showing us some interesting bookends. The earthly ministry of Jesus begins at a wedding. The final conclusion of Jesus' redemptive work ends with a wedding. So back to John 1. As I already noted, the groom was responsible for providing enough wine. That's his job for the week-long wedding. In the case of the wedding at Cana, the groom failed. Mary brings the problem to Jesus. Jesus responds and says, my time has not yet come. What Mary didn't know and what Jesus did know was that the day was coming when Jesus would establish his earthly kingdom, an eternal kingdom. 
inaugurated by a wedding ceremony where he, the perfect groom, would provide abundant wine for all peoples. But that time had not yet arrived. Jesus, however, does respond, and he does turn 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of wine, six stone purification jars filled to the brim. And in that moment, he took symbols of the emptiness of the Jewish rituals, and he signaled that he's going to replace those things with abundant joy and celebration, overflowing. The old was passing away, the new was arriving. And with that, Jesus gave a literal foretaste, a literal foretaste of the kingdom to come. The day would arrive where he would function as the bridegroom. When his bride, the church, would come to be his forever. At that time, he would fulfill the Old Testament promises of that lavish celebratory feast, which marked the beginning of the eternal kingdom. All those in attendance at that wedding would not only have their fill of rich food and excellent wine, but more importantly, they would overcome death. They would overcome death. They'd have their tears wiped away. They'd forever live in God's presence and be his people. With the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, this kingdom began to come to bear upon earth. From that point on, Jesus' disciples repeatedly received glimpses, just glimpses of his glory. Full glorification, not yet, but glimpses of that glory. And so his earthly ministry is marked by what? Bringing joy to those who mourn, healing those who are sick, accepting those who are rejected, uh, even life to those who have died. All of these are samples of the abundant celebratory feast that was yet to come. You can see that when he feeds thousands miraculously with a few loaves and fish. And then turning water into wine, he's saying, I'm the groom who provides for the celebration. Again, glimpses of his glory. Enough that those who had ears to hear would believe. So in conclusion, in Revelation, as the marriage supper is described, an angel proclaims in Revelation 19.9, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so we began by kind of asking, who would you invite to your wedding? Who are John and Olivia going to invite to their wedding? Who are you going to invite to your wedding? We're going to end with this question, though. Not who are you going to invite to your wedding, but are you going to be invited to that wedding? That's the question. Why? Because everyone who responds to that invitation, who are present at that wedding on that day, are going to be those who have overcome death. They're going to be those who are going to have their tears wiped away by God himself. They are those who are going to be delivered from the curse of sin. These are going to be those who have received full and final salvation, never to be separated from God again. That's who's going to be at that wedding. All those at that wedding are those who can say in Isaiah 25, 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. So in closing, how can you be assured that you will be at that wedding? Well, consider the response of Jesus' disciples in John chapter 2, verse 11. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's the right response. That's the right response. The disciples of Jesus saw a glimpse of his glory, a small taste of the glory that would one day be revealed in its fullness, 
And upon seeing that glimpse, they believed. They believed that he was what? The Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And they believed that through him and him alone, one could have eternal life. That's what they believed. This morning, have you believed in Jesus? If you're a Christian this morning, you have something incredible to look forward to. You have that wedding invitation, right? You're going to be seated at that table. You are part of the bride of Christ. You are going to experience the eradication of death. You are going to experience the rolling back of that curse of sin. The suffering that you experience now, whether it be your own suffering or watching those you love suffer, all of that's going to be eliminated. Tears are going to be wiped away, eternity with God, so that it can be said forever and for eternity, He is your God and you are His people. That's what we look forward to. But if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, understand that that kingdom is ushered in after judgment. The same king who comes to sit on his throne does so after judging his enemies. You want to be on the right side of that. That invitation is extended to you. You receive that invitation through belief in Jesus. And so, if you would, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Express that to God in prayer. The biblical pattern is what? Believe in Jesus, be baptized in his name, and then by his grace, live as his disciple. And so this morning, if you are a Christian... Take solace in the fact that the suffering you're experiencing now is going to give way. It's going to give way on that day. That's the hope that we have. And so we look forward to that day. If you're here as an unbeliever, understand that God is in the saving business. And that invitation is extended to you and you can believe in a moment. If you're here as a believer, spread those invitations around, right? And so uh, instead of a plus one, maybe you want to bring a plus two and a plus three and a plus four and a plus five. Uh, Spread the news of the kingdom around. But let's go ahead and pray and give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to establish that kingdom. Dear Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that not only do we have an invitation to his table, but we're not simply going to be there as guests, Lord, the church. We are actually also the bride. And so first, the privilege of sitting at the king's table. And next of all, the privilege of actually being the bride to the bridegroom. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, to think that there at the wedding of Cana, though there was a groom, an earthly groom, who failed in his provision of wine for his guests, there was another groom present, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom to the church. And that he, in humility and really behind the scenes, performed a miracle, giving a little glimpse of of the glory that was to come. Lord, I pray that you would help us as believers to live in hope. I pray that you sustain us as we experience the suffering of this life, whether it be our own struggles, whether it be health struggles, whether it be experiencing the fallenness of man, whether it be through violence or abuse, whether it be experiencing the curse of death as we watch even our loved ones suffering or passing away. I pray that you would sustain us with that hope, understanding that this is not all that there is, but that Jesus Christ has overcome sin and death and Satan. Uh, But the day of consummation yet remains future.
So help us to live in hope, looking forward to that day when Jesus will return and consummate his kingdom so that we with the crowd in Isaiah 25 could cry out that salvation has finally come. So Lord, sustain us as we live this life uh, under this curse of sin, looking forward to full and final salvation. And then lastly, Lord, we just pray for any who have not yet received Jesus as Savior and Lord. I pray that they would understand his grace and mercy, understand that this invitation is extended to them, and I pray that they had received Jesus as their Savior and Lord. So, Lord, we pray that you would save souls. And we pray that these also would be added, that they would be included in the bride of Christ, and that we could uh, rejoice with them for all of eternity in that eternal kingdom. Lord, we thank you for this and for Jesus. I pray you would help us to make much of him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.